0: Hello, and welcome to How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, January 25th. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hello, Claire. So
1: I'm in a good mood, Jen. I bet you know why. Oh, the Chiefs are so terrible. They're going to get killed by Josh Allen and the Bills. They have to go into frozen hellscape and win a game on the road. And poor little Pat Mahomes has never won a game on the road. And once again, every single year Pat Mahomes has started, he has led the team to the AFC division title. Okay, I love that game. 50 million
0: people watch that game. My problem is I'm a little promiscuous with my football fandom right now because I just, I love every team. Like, I appreciate the Chiefs. I grew up as a 49er fan because I was in the Bay Area when I went to high school. So I love the 49ers. I love the Chiefs because it's the same vibe as the 49ers was in the 90s. But, you know, I live in Maryland and the Ravens. So I will be rooting for the Ravens and not the Chiefs, I have to say.
1: That's okay. (laughs) And by the way, it's so good that we're an underdog again. I know that, like, it blows my mind that people are betting against the Chiefs, even in Baltimore. Yeah, they're moving the line to try to get more people to bet on the Chiefs. So in every game, the bookmakers decide who is favored and who isn't. Right. And the bookmakers look at a lot of factors when they set the line. But if the line moves, like let's say if you start the week, I think the, the Ravens started the week like minus three. Well, then the next time I look mm-hmm. two days later, it was the Ravens minus four. Well, what that means is too many people were betting on the Ravens. And the book oh. wants you to, in a perfect world, people who make book want there to be the same amount of bets on both sides. And then they just make the vigorous, the vig. You know, it's almost like hedging. Yeah. So when you see the line move, that means they're trying to entice you to vote the other way. So it went from minus three to minus four. And they were hoping they get more people to b- vote on those poor chiefs that have to come in. Ridiculous. At that stadium and have Lamar Jackson run all over him. Now, by the way, well, Lamar Jackson is amazing. And I won't be shocked if they beat the chiefs, but yeah. I'm with you. I don't think anybody should bet against him. So speaking of the Super Bowl, we had another big Super Bowl uh, this week. We had New Hampshire. But also on this show, we're going to talk to Mike Memley. And we're going to check in with a guy who has followed Biden forever, knows everything yep. about their campaign. He's going to give us the skinny on what Biden and Harris are focusing on and where. And we're also going to spotlight the no-labels kerfuffle. This is the latest thing with the
0: group that's trying to put a third-party candidate That makes me crazy, but Claire, even crazier. And they recently submitted a complaint to the Department of Justice to shut down opposition to their efforts to put a third-party candidate of the ticket is Biden versus Trump, and it blows my mind. So we're
1: going to talk about that. But first, winners and losers, who's your winner this week? I think we have big winner, little winner. The big winner this week was, in fact, Joe Biden. I think no one really knew how this was going to work. First of all, I think people need to understand something. The Democrats in New Hampshire were mad at Joe Biden. Because he was trying to move the first primary in the nation to South Carolina. There was a sense in the party, and I don't think it was just Joe Biden, that it made a lot more sense to begin our primary schedule someplace that was slightly more diverse than Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think that's, I think that's fair. And so the DNC decided the first primary would be in South Carolina. But New Hampshire has a constitutional requirement that theirs go first. The Secretary of State has to set their primary before everyone else's. So you had a conflict between the people of New Hampshire, the law of New Hampshire, and Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. So Joe Biden said, I'm not going to campaign. I'm not going to be on your ballot. Not going to get any delegates. Now, they will get delegates. They'll seat their delegates. This is taking away New Hampshire's, this is like hurting their
0: economy bad. Like, it's not just a political thing. It is a big deal. Huge deal.
1: Huge deal. So here he is not on the ballot, and a grassroots movement sprung up to write in his name. And then you had this other guy, I'm not even say his name because nobody knows his name and nobody cares. This other guy that's running against him got a bunch of money from some Wall Street guys, changed his position on some stuff to get it. And then he rolled into New Hampshire, spent a bunch of money trying to get votes. And as it turned out, he couldn't even break 20. And Joe Biden walked away easily with a massive win, bigger than Trump's. And his name wasn't even on the ballot. So I think it was a good night for Joe Biden. So first test of the
0: Biden enthusiasm, pretty good. I have a small winner, which is Nikki Haley. She didn't win New Hampshire. She lost by double digits, but she beat the spread, right? The line, whatever. She did. She beat the line. Good. (laughs) See, There you go, Jen. I'm getting it. Okay, right. She beat the line because she was, you know, she was down by like 20 points in most polls and she lost by like, it looks like it's going to be like about 11 or so. And she handled Tuesday night really well. I'm a total nerd about the like logistics of this. Got on stage, got on stage early, looked like a winner with her floral dress that Trump attacked, made all the right arguments for why she's going to stay in. I mean, it incensed Trump that she acted like a winner when she didn't actually win, which is, of course, really ironic.
2: Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before And like claimed a victory. She did very poorly, actually. I think we're 50 points up on a person that was governor. That tells you something. But I felt I should do this because I find in life you can't let people get away with bullshit. Okay, You can't. You just can't do that. And when I watched her in the fancy dress that probably wasn't so fancy come up, I said, what's she doing? We won. And she
0: had a lot of independents that turned out to vote for her good news for Biden too by the way and you know embedded in there and then she went to South Carolina and I thought she might you know tone things down and Trump just went after her he's just been insane on truth social attacking her and she just amped it up went down to South Carolina and like really went after him the way that we would see uh, Chris Christie so she's got a month to try to move people in South Carolina it's hard with that demographic down there there's a lot of trump support but you know she's like really fighting back first time yeah. late but whatever she's doing it and by the way it's good for Americans to hear this. It's good for Americans to hear a Republican make effective arguments against Trump. So who's the big loser? So big loser Trump. He basically got 50 percent in Iowa, basically 50 percent in New Hampshire. That is not great for a boy who's basically an incumbent. And what's so interesting is that we've had, you know, we've had two contests in Iowa and New Hampshire where people were subjected to hearing a lot of arguments about Donald Trump. And what the NBC polls, the entry polls, exit polls for Iowa and New Hampshire showed is 25 percent of Iowa Republican caucus goers said they would not vote for Trump. And 30 percent of them said if he was convicted that they would not vote for him. That number is over 40% in NBC polls in New Hampshire. And, you know, it shows that when people are are subjected to hearing him, hearing the arguments against him, that's where they come out. Also, 67% in the New Hampshire exit polls, abortion rights, critical issue for them. New Hampshire basically looks like the affluent suburbs of Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, right? Michigan. So, It's a roadmap for the Biden campaign about this big tranche of voters, probably even more so moderates, independents that are, you know, for Haley now, that are open to him, maybe even more so than 2020. It is a very big deal. And for that reason, it's good to have these contests continue because
1: we're learning a lot about voters and that really helps the Biden campaign. Yeah, the data. Yeah, the data. It's huge. So the small loser is the same as the small winner, Nikki Haley. We got to talk about her as as a loser also because she lost. And if there was ever a state that she was going to win, it was New Hampshire. And keep in mind, Nikki Haley has plenty of money. She has plenty of money. And she went everywhere in New Hampshire. She did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. She blanketed digital. She blanketed the airwaves. She did all the things she should have. Maybe she should have turned on Trump earlier, but... Right, made a real argument against the front runner. but whatever. In, in many ways, she did the blocking and tackling that you would need to do in New Hampshire to win. And the fact that she didn't win. And here's the deal. I think she's going to benefit slightly from South Carolina because everyone is saying she's going to get killed there. Oh, you're right. She's just going to get killed there. So her expectations are being set very low in South Carolina. But I will say this. Here's the bottom line. She's not going to win. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And the longer she's in it, the more she's going to drive him crazy, which is very good for the country to see. He is irrationally lashing out at her, not doing what any sane person would do to reach out to independent voters and moderate Republican voters, but she's losing. So she is a, a loser, and in the way she is losing, she is helping Joe Biden. I have to admit it. Have to admit it.
0: <laughs> she is. No, it is. It's like I'm happy for her to stick around. Like it's
1: you know, we all know who the nominee is going to be. I'm happy for her to stick around. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, Bidenologist and NBC White House correspondent Mike Memoli joins the show for a look at what Biden's been up to on the campaign trail. We'll be back in a moment.
2: (laughs) Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. (laughs) Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes fast with online pickup or delivery.
0: No more suffering. That's nothing to
3: sneeze at.
2: <laughs> I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart.
1: You can live out your master chef dreams when you find a
2: professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this
1: when you Angie that.
0: Welcome back. So with just nine months to go before the general election, the Biden-Harris campaign is underway. My view is that it started on January 5th when the president went to Valley Forge to give his speech on the anniversary of Jan six. That was sort of the starting gun. This week, the president's reelection team launched a nationwide series of events focused on the battle over abortion rights. And that's an issue that obviously is going to be center in the reelection campaign.
1: Yeah, that's right, Jen. And this week marks a pretty important anniversary, the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And the Biden campaign has figured this part out. Uh, they are not going to miss the chance to capitalize on this because the vast majority of America is upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned. And frankly, the vast majority of women are raw, angry about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Biden campaign has figured this out. This week, they had the president, the vice president, Dr. Jill Biden, and the first gentleman all in Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin got his you-know-what whipped when he tried to make it about 15-week ban on abortion. And the voters of Virginia said, nah, nah, we know we don't like your fleece fest, buddy. Move along. We're going to stick with the Democrats. So I think it's important that we kind of begin to drill down on what exactly is the Biden campaign doing and how will it help them win 2024. So here to
0: talk about all of that and Biden's other re-election efforts is NBC White House correspondent and resident Bidenologist Mike Memolee. Memolee, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Great to be with you both.
0: It's so fun. We love it so much. We're like, <laughs> let's get Memolee on because I do think that people are saying like, well, what are they going to do with this? And what are they going to do that in the Biden campaign? And what are things really going to start? And I was like, let's go back to the beginning of January. Lay out for us what you see as their strategy now.
3: Yeah. I mean, you look at this Biden team. I've been covering President Biden since he was Senator Biden, running for president in 2008. Right. I've gotten to know his team well over all these years. and they certainly have been taking their lumps right there's been so much second guessing third guessing pre- preliminary guessing <laughs> of every aspect of their strategy since the day the president announced he was running for a second term in april and for the most part they understand this they they saw it in 2020 they're used to it and there had been a lot of talk about the obama model for a reelection campaign which is you sort of sit back you let the other primary play out and then you are ready to pounce once the nominee is determined and i think That would have meant maybe we don't see the president out on the campaign trail until typically April or May. But what what are we seeing? We're seeing the earliest start of a general election, perhaps in the history of this country. Effectively, New Hampshire signaled that with Donald Trump winning the the New Hampshire primary after winning the Iowa caucuses. And so a Biden team that has long been confident that Donald Trump would be the nominee was planning for just this moment. And they came out ready to go, knowing that there was no sign to them that Ron DeSantis was going to have some miraculous turnaround, that Nikki Haley was going to to be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat. And so they were ready and positioned to execute on their plan earlier than perhaps even they expected. And that was a very deliberate strategy. And, and you see what are, I think, the three pillars of what will be the Biden re-election campaign. You start with the democracy pillar. That is so important to the president, to his team. They really do think that this country is one election away from losing its democracy and so that's why the president came out with that major speech in Valley Forge laying out all the ways in which he thinks Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy and very much antithetical to what this country has been about throughout its history starting with George Washington and saying essentially Donald Trump is is no George Washington. The second pillar is abortion rights. The Biden team has felt from the day the Dobbs decision was handed down that this was going to, as as Claire rightfully says, light a fire under women voters. It has in places like Kansas, in that first indication, in re- that referendum in 2022, it became a major part of their midterm strategy. And it is going to be a major part of the reelection strategy. And you'll see Vice President Kamala Harris largely carrying that message across the country through the year. And then the third pillar is the economy. Now, I know there's a lot of questions about does the president have an economic record to run on? They certainly, of course, think so. Look at all he's done in his legislation. But the polls have made that perhaps the toughest issue for them to message on. Mike Donilon and Joe Biden are not going to surrender <laughs> on the economy. They are, go- they're, <laughs> no. they are determined to win the economic argument. And that's why you see the president in Wisconsin today and spending a lot of time with union audiences, because that is who Joe Biden believes is. The Democratic Party, and he wants to make sure that they stay loyal to the Democratic Party. Uh, and that's, that's really what you've seen unfold in here in these first three weeks of January.
1: So, Mike, do you get a sense that within the campaign there is any conflict about that, because I think Joe Biden is holding on in some ways to a fantasy. I mean, I know what the union leaders say, that Mm -hmm. only 30 percent of their folks voted for Trump. But, you know, I'm from Missouri and, you know, we have pretty strong union folks here. And I got to tell you, the rank and file, they are all in on Trump, Mm -hmm. you know, because they have the same grievance. They think the man's always screwing them over. The elites look down their nose. They can party with grievance. And so I'm curious if you get a sense on the ground when you see these folks showing up that are union members, you get a sense that Joe Biden is right about this or wrong about this? And is there a fight within about it?
3: Claire, you're you're 100 percent right in terms of what is emerging as a real divide between leadership in the labor movement and the rank and file. And you need to look no further than how long it took for the UAW to come around and make this endorsement of the president and look at the. International Association of Firefighters. President Biden is so personally connected with firefighters. They were the very first union to endorse him when he announced his candidacy in 2020. They actually held a rally for him a few weeks before he announced his candidacy. I remember saying, run, Joe, run. And I did some reporting just recently about this because it struck me that that union had not endorsed him yet. And they might not endorse him. And the reason is, is because they have new leadership in the union. When they did make that endorsement of President Biden, then candidate Biden in 2020, there was a lot of blowback from within the ranks. And I spoke with one of the leaders of a local in the union who said, listen, the president has done right by firefighters. He has been great for us in terms of his record. But our members have other issues they care about. They care about the Second Amendment. Right. And so this really is, I think back to and Jen, I'm sorry to have to bring this up. An interview I did with, with the vice president. In the days after Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election, he talked about seeing the types of people he grew up with, as he put it, behind. Vice,
0: when, when you're talking about when Joe Biden was vice president. That's right. This the is places. Okay. Yeah.
3: This, this is November of 2016, mm-hmm. and and he talked about the fact that when he would see the kind of crowds Donald Trump had in the 2016 campaign with the people that he said should be our voters, he he felt that there was a disconnect that had grown in the party that they had begun to let those voters go, and so. That is why this campaign, he is so determined to continue to make that case to these kinds of voters to show that the Democratic Party is the party of the working man and woman. But it is going to be a tough fight. And there are a lot of people in the campaign who think we have abortion, we have the democracy argument, we have so many other issues that we can speak to core constituencies about, and we need to just fight the economy to a draw. But Joe Biden wants to win that argument.
0: So we've talked about his travel schedule, which since the beginning of January has been very robust. But I should note also, the vice president has had a busy schedule. She's also in a lot of battleground states, a lot of trips to South Carolina ahead of the primary next month. Claire talked about the unions. The big vulnerability for them is the voters that were with him in 20, the drop-off voters everybody talks about. Young voters, Black voters, Hispanic voters— do you feel like there is an effort to be doing persuasion with these audiences, particularly with black voters, Hispanic voters that we're not necessarily seen? Like, how are they thinking about getting those drop off voters back? Has that effort started yet?
3: Well, it's so interesting. And I spoke with Quentin Fulks, who's the, the deputy campaign manager for the Biden campaign, about just this fact. And he was R- Raphael Warnock's campaign manager in 2022. And he feels passionately, as he says, the president does, which is black voters are not a base constituency that we talk to in October, that we try to just get them to turn out in November. This is a persuasion group, just like every other constituency that we're talking to. And we need to be talking to them early and often. And that's why you've seen such a focus on black voters from the campaign. And that's why one of the reasons why they moved South Carolina to the front of the line Yes, it was nostalgic of the place that set him on the path to the presidency. Jim Clyburn often says he didn't even ask for South Carolina to move first, but there it was. But for them, this was an opportunity to put them at the front of the line and begin messaging to black voters nationally through South Carolina about the issues that are important to them. Now, you can also look at the exit polls in 2020 and see the fact that Donald Trump did perform better than expected especially in some of these big cities, and they know that they have work to do. Having the first woman and first African-American vice president nominating and confirming the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court are nice gestures, but are not enough. And they believe that this is work that needs to be done early and often. And so much of the advertising that they've already done nationally has been targeted to communities of color specifically. And so this is one of those communities that they believe that they need to be talking to throughout the campaign. And we're seeing that already.
0: Last week, the president went to Raleigh to talk about suit and loan forgiveness. That's not getting a ton of pickup. It's a huge issue for them. What do we need to know about what they've done and how they're trying to amplify it?
3: Well, it's interesting because there's certainly some frustration on the Biden team that they're not getting enough credit for what they've done. Right. And this is where the sure. White House messaging itself could be, you know, inspected a little bit because they have agency here and could be doing a better job of it. Mm-hmm. But this is also an area that the president was not necessarily All in at the beginning. Right. Remember, this was a major Mm -hmm. issue in the 2020 campaign. Right. Elizabeth Warren primarily running on the idea of debt forgiveness, um, among other issues. And the president had a very smaller scale proposal in the campaign. And when he came into office, even he had to sort of be convinced of the merits of a more robust student loan forgiveness program. Now, he got there. It took some doing, but he did get there. And then the Supreme Court stepped in. And so this is where the frustration of the Biden team comes in because the president did come forward with a plan, the Supreme Court struck it down. He wants to put the onus on the Supreme Court, but a lot of voters are saying, you could have done more, you could have been there. And so I think you're gonna see them continue to try to be creative as they continue at just were in the last week, finding ways to revise the executive, use through executive action, existing programs to expand the universe of people who are getting their loans forgiven, We have seen even letters go out from the president saying, hey, guess what? I forgave more of your loans. You know, some people call that a little Trumpian, but hey, that's politics. That's the benefits of incumbency. And so they're going to continue to look for ways to do that. But I think the Supreme Court itself will be a big issue. And I think that you will see them highlight not just the role of the Supreme Court in things like abortion rights, but also in blocking progress on areas like student loans.
0: But I've also noticed the president stepping away from the podium, <laughs> which is a really smart thing, and doing small events literally at people's kitchen tables. And last week, when he went to Raleigh right. and went to a family's home, somebody whose loans had been forgiven, to talk to him about like what that meant for him and his family, and his teenage sons did a TikTok video about the president coming to their home. That's it was right, so cute. Ten million views. Ten million views from that one TikTok video. And I was like, okay, that is smart and inorganic. It was the sons did it. They did it on their own things. And, you know, and it's, it's organic and authentic and real. There can be amplification. And so, like, I was like, oh, all right, that's starting. To your point, they're not waiting to October.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's not an accident because this whole strategy as well is for too long, you've been seeing the president behind a podium. The president has a very old school view of the presidency and a, and a reverence for the office and has felt that He needs to act and sound a certain way. And his team has been impressing on him, especially as we start the campaign, that you need to do this differently. That your greatest political strength for so long was your authenticity, the sense that you were Uncle Joe, our our everyman Joe. And the presidency, in so many ways, the office he has aspired to his whole career, has inhibited his ability to practice politics that has made him successful. And so you're actually also seeing at the start of the year... That strategy, that message, get through to the president, who's been now more willing to do these more informal, unscripted events, which do in this social media age play much better. And the messaging is so important. One Biden official told me we're getting smoked online. And so that last week is a perfect example of how you can communicate more effectively by going around, I'm sorry to say, all of us in the White House press corps.
1: (laughs) In addition to you. you. Yeah. So one last thing I want to touch on before we let you go, I think young voters are really more of a problem for the president than some of the other folks that we are wringing our hands about. And particularly as we look at the unconscionable level of civilian deaths in Gaza. And what that means in a state like Michigan, and what is happening at his rallies with these organized disruptions, which even though he handles them like a professional, because this is not his first rodeo, it's still difficult. And do you get a sense that he is willing to pick a more public fight with Bibi uh, Netanyahu on this stuff? I have friends of mine who are independent voters who say I just am very worried about all these wars. I mean, it's just like the wars are weighing on people. And Trump, even though we know that all the bad guys in the world loved him as president and him back as president, the Trump supporters say we didn't have wars and now we have wars. So what's going on there? How is the campaign addressing that? And are young people showing up at his events other than to protest?
3: That's right. Well, I I talked about how confident the Biden team is in their theory of the case and how they are used to the second guessing. And I think this is one of those areas where they admit to a little bit of vulnerability, frankly. When you talk to them about the way in which the war in Gaza could impact him in November, they say, well, if this is still going on in October then we'll figure it out right I mean I think they do understand that this is a president who believes so deeply in his core that we need to support Israel although his personal long history and complicated history with Bibi Netanyahu is beginning to come through a little bit more as he has been more willing to be publicly critical of him but they have seen some surprising support especially among Jewish voters that they say is not necessarily being covered a lot but young voters it, this is a hundred percent an area that they are as I'm often told obsessed with and they're obsessed with it because they haven't yet figured it it out. They haven't unlocked the way in which to talk to young voters. It's interesting if you look in New Hampshire, right, This surprising write-in support for him, there was an effort to write in ceasefire. Only about 1,500, oh. only about 1500 Democratic primary voters wrote in ceasefire. Donald Trump got more write-in votes in the Democratic primary than ceasefire. So the Biden campaign will point to that to say, yes, they are quite loud and quite capable of disrupting events, but they may not necessarily be a a large cross-section of the audience, you know, the the voting electorate. But that's, I think, a a hopeful sense. I think there's a low turnout primary, and then there's what we're going to see in November. I thought it was so interesting how Jamie Raskin talked about it when he was campaigning for President Biden in New Hampshire and was talking to young voters and was getting questions about this. He said, listen, this is President Biden's last election, but this is your first election. And look at how the parties what they stand for, what they represent, and what you want to see, and vote for your interests. Vote for your future, and look closely at what party best best represents that. And so that struck me as an interesting way to try to tackle not just the vulnerabilities he has right now on Gaza, but the age issues specifically. And you have if you notice, you hear the president using the word "future" more often. he's talking about the ways in which he wants to see the country move forward in the twenty first century. He did use that term that he saw himself as a bridge to the next generation of Democrats in the 2020 campaign. I've heard from a lot of Democrats that they wanna hear that again. Uh, and there was the, the mayor of Boston, who is also one of the official surrogates, the Avengers Squad, as they call them, the uh, National Advisory Board. She talked about at an event that I covered just the last few days, we need to reelect Joe Biden to help facilitate this transition to the next generation of Democrats. It'll be interesting to see if that kind of language sticks with voters, if it lands with voters, and if we begin to hear more of it as the campaign unfolds.
0: You're the best. Yeah. Memolee, thank you so much. So fun, too. Yeah, but we really appreciate it.
3: Happy to be with you guys.
0: We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Claire and I are going to throw a spotlight on a complaint filed with a Department of Justice by no labels, the group that's trying to run a third party candidate in this year's election. Okay, so come back for you-
1: that now. I'm, I'm interrupting her because you gotta come back for that because I'm gonna go off on these people. I mean, I, have, I am done. I am so done. I, I can't wait to get mad right after this break. You can live out your master chef
2: dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
1: Welcome back. You remember the group No Labels? They were founded... No, let's just say the truth. They weren't founded by moderates on both sides. They were founded by one woman. Her name is Nancy Jacobson. She has decided that she is going to field a presidential slate. Now, here's what they did this week, and this is why we're circling back to it. They are wanting to say that they are opening up democracy, that they are holier than thou, that they are pure at heart. All they want is an open democratic system. In this Orwellian effort, they have crafted a strategy that allows them to raise all this money without anybody knowing where it's coming from. And as long as they haven't named a candidate. But as soon as they name a candidate, they have to disclose their donors. So once a candidate is named, all those folks would have to come out from behind the curtain. So then what do they do? They start a super PAC. They won't say who's giving them the money. They won't say how they're picking a candidate. Everything's behind closed doors. And what they did this week, Jen, this is really hypocritical. Yeah. They're trying to manipulate an entire presidential election with secret money. And they go whining to the Department of Justice because people are saying bad things about them and wanting them to not do it and trying to do everything they can to stop them because they will help elect Donald Trump. Grow up. Stop it. I mean, Joe Lieberman was a friend of mine. Some of these guys are friends of mine, but I don't know what they're thinking And I don't know who the genius is that thinks accusing people, criticizing them of being criminals is the way to do this. If they're about democracy, if this is really about transparent democracy, I've got an idea. Come out from behind the curtain, have a press conference and tell America who's funding this. As long as they're meeting behind doors and picking in a star chamber who they think should be president of the United States, they need to shut up about democracy. I mean, I
0: have just always thought about this whole effort, the hubris of people thinking, first of all, it's a secret effort and there's more to say about that. But just that they're just toying with democracy when we have everything at stake. And then to comment that groups. And so, you know, we had a great conversation with Matt Bennett of Third Way, who's been sort of leading the charge about
1: how a third party, and particularly the No York of it, folks, if you haven't, go back and listen to that episode, because it really does lay kind of the groundwork as to what they're up to and how it might really go badly. They are
0: on the ballot in 13 states, and they are currently active, which means they have already filed for ballot access or are actively gaining signatures in 14 states. That's not 50. If they are not on the ballot in all states, they should not be on the ballot in any state because what, what are you doing? If you're not on the ballot in every state, you are not seriously trying to win 270 electoral votes. You're trying to manipulate the election so that it gets thrown into the House of Representatives, okay? And if the Republicans control the delegation then they get the one vote. The Democrats control the delegation, and then presumably they control that. So it would be very much in question how that would
1: go. Frankly, most of the states they've gotten on the ballot are not the important states in terms of the presidential and electoral vote count. But in one of these states, Arizona, folks said, well, we are no labels party members. We want to run on that ballot line. In other words, this is supposed to be about opening up the ballot and democracy for everyone. What does no labels do? They go to court and say, oh, no, nobody else can run on our ballot line. We can only run our star chamber of choice that we pick behind closed doors. Who knows how they're going to pick it? Talk about an exercise in scary anti-democratic tendencies. They won't even let other people run on their ballot line. And they went to court and won which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. "Yeah." Well, they own this ballot line and they alone, I guess Nancy Jacobson alone gets to decide, she and Mark Penn get to decide who gets to run with them or who gets to even call themselves a member of the No Labels Party. It is just weird. Also, their big
0: thing is like, we need a centrist candidate. We have a centrist candidate. His name is Joe Biden. He is a centrist candidate by any measure. When you look at the things that he is for and what he's done and look at how the American people feel about things, he is a centrist candidate. The country is polarized over things other than issues, OK? And their little magical third-party candidate is not going to be able to conquer that, right? Like, we're in it, people. This is the fight. It is Donald Trump versus Joe Biden.
1: And you on the side of democracy. You got to be on the side of Biden. Yeah, and so now they've formed a super PAC. They want to make sure nobody ever knows who gave the money. that's what's really creepy about this. They are putting up with this idea that billionaires can write 10, $20 million checks and nobody in America ever gets to know who are the people that are funding this. mean, it should be disqualifying on its face. I, I hate dark money. And you would think people who love democracy would hate dark money, but the whole way they're doing this has been crafted to make sure that dark money reigns supreme. Since they've filed this complaint against these people, we should
0: let people know what the groups have said in response. So this is what the Lincoln Project said about the no labels complaint. This is a desperate attempt to salvage their failing campaign and keep their fleeing supporters who have finally seen through their facade. Make no mistake, we are not intimidated by threats from former presidents, and we won't be from political hacks who think they can stop us in this existential fight for democracy. And this is a response from Third Way that they gave CBS News. They call the allegations, quote, baseless and frivolous. They have confirmed our warning that they are actually planning to use this doomed third party effort to force a contingent election. We will continue to make the case publicly and privately that no labels risk putting Donald Trump back in power if they go
1: forward. So let me give my closing thoughts on this, because I think I want to first acknowledge that I think there is room for a third party in America. I am worried that the middle is not being supported. And that's where you get consistent policy that lasts longer than 10 minutes or the next swing in the election. yeah, Uh, Rewarding people for compromise is part of our country's history. Our Constitution is full of things that say the founders wanted our elected leaders to compromise. So I want there to be more celebration of folks who are willing to cross the aisle, willing to bring together coalitions and craft good public policy. So why is this not the election to do it? Because this is the election where they could successfully elect a twice impeached, indicted in four jurisdictions on 91 counts, found by a court, a jury that he had sexually assaulted a woman, paid off porn stars, and that's just the beginning of the list to the presidency. So if no labels is serious about this, I would make a a humble suggestion Back off this this year and begin to open up your process. Allow other people to participate. Don't make it just a club for billionaires and secret money. Allow people to run on your line. Begin building party structure so that if there is a centrist candidate down the line four years from now or eight years from now that America is comfortable with, that there might be a third party president of the United States. I am not opposed to that. I am opposed to the way they're doing this. And most of all, I'm opposed to when they're doing this. But if they could just back off this year, I think our democracy would be grateful. Well said. Friends,
0: thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to Questions at nbcuni.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 646 974 4194,
1: and we might answer it on the pod. This show is produced by Vicki Vergelina. And Jessica Schrecker, with production support from Ivy Green. Katherine Anderson and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Ayesha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Go Chiefs. Oh, my God. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and
0: follow the series.